0: Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 181. And today, we're going to Bhutan. Kind of. Well, we're in New York. We're not leaving New York. Can't really leave New York. Things are getting really weird in New York. And it looks like the country's headed for another shutdown here, so... I'm just kind of daydreaming every day. I was looking at these rentals in Shargao for like under 200 US for a full month uh can fit multiple people in like a villa. I'm trying to figure out like what boat is coming by here in the East River that I can kind of like smuggle myself onto to get over there. <sighs> so right now we will live vicariously through the guests that we have on this podcast. My guest for today is Ben Clark. Ben is a mountaineer and an outdoorsman and a documentary filmmaker. I was particularly interested in Ben because he made a film about the snowman trek in Bhutan. And I hadn't really seen anyone else who, you know, produced any sort of content from there, and I surely don't know anyone who's ever actually done the trek, which by all accounts sounds like it is a really difficult one. And I'll let Ben get into the story because they had a, a specific mission that they were trying to do, to try to do it really fast, but... He can tell his stories way better than I can. So I reached out to Ben. He was really gracious, came on, and had some really great stories, some really cool insights about travel and life in the world. So this one was a, a real pleasure. Please go to the show notes for this episode. You'll find links to all of Ben's stuff. Probably the best place to go is his Facebook because he's got links to all the video content that he's created. He also takes really, uh, really beautiful pictures. If you go to his Instagram account, he's got these wild photos from all over the world. But some of my favorites, and I mentioned this in the episode, but some of my favorites are from from China. So go to the show notes for that stuff. You also know this already, but there is a Patreon link in the show notes as well. So please check that out if you can give. uh, That's a monthly-based subscription, and you get things like shirts and stickers and stuff as a kickback. But if not, and you found this one interesting, tell a friend, share it, blast it out on social media. All those things help. All right, folks, enjoy this conversation with Ben Clark. Thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, you bet. Yeah. Um- Always psyched to uh, have a little conversation about stuff and appreciate you reaching out and, and having some interesting topics talking today. Cool. Are you, do you live in New York? Well, yeah, I mean, currently, but right now <laughs> we've been outside the city since uh, March 17th. Wow. And, you know, we're just sort of seeing what happens, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, you're fortunate, though. Like, we've... We've been able to do a little bit of stuff, uh, but mostly, like right now I've got this like <laughs> cooling towel on me because it's so hot and like a fifth floor walk up in Brooklyn right now. Um, so you're, yeah. you're quite fortunate that you've been able to be out of the city. It's getting kind of weird.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, like with kids, it's just really difficult because the journalist in me and the storyteller in me and, you know, obviously anyone with any kind of empathy, I mean how can you not feel how can you not feel just every range of emotions really about the city right now? I mean, knowing, knowing we have an apartment that our office is there our most of our things are there, um, you know, like whether we can see our friends or not, it's like just thinking, wow, like this, we have so much um, committed to the city and just knowing that it's such a tense time there and some of the suffering that's been going on. I mean, we definitely feel fortunate in that we were able to, to get out, but we also eventually, you know, I have a son who lives in Colorado. So we had to get out and make it to him to try to figure out what was going to be, um, the right solution for him and his mom. And they're great, super independent, amazing people. Love them both. Uh, is a great, uh, mother. And I have a, you know, obviously a great relationship with her as a co-parent and yeah, I mean, we, we, if we could have sat it out there with not only him and being in Colorado, but my daughter being in you know our apartment, in Brooklyn, then I think we would have. But we were really concerned. And I think now we've seen that concern it was really validated, right?
0: Uh, for sure. Um, I mean, despite all like the social unrest, just the I work in schools and, you know, I, I won't I won't talk about COVID the whole time, but. Uh, like no, yeah. no one knows what's happening and we, it's like, it's really hard to plan for the future. It's real I mean, you're a parent, so it's, it's really hard for parents to know what to do. Uh, it's, totally. tri- it's tricky. So you're in, you're in Colorado right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're currently in uh Telluride, Colorado right now. I used to live here and, uh, we're just hanging out at 8,750 feet. Oh, I'm so jealous, and, man. Uh, you know, just feeling lucky that we could be in the mountains for a
0: minute. Yeah. You know, when I, when I first reached out to you, Ben, uh, I was, I'm I'm super interested in Bhutan. I haven't been there. Um, I had somebody, on. I had an expat who lives in Bhutan on the podcast recently. So I'm going to, I'm going to sort of build up to that in a little bit. Um, because I'm really interested in the snowman trek, but after, seeing your amazing (laughs) place. Oh yeah. I can't wait to hear about it. But like after, after checking that out, I started to sort of unpeel the layers of the onion, which is like your your life and your body of work. And you've done a lot of really fascinating stuff. Uh, so I'm hoping to, to be able to touch on a few different things, but, uh, you, I appreciate that. (laughs) Oh yeah. You're initially from Tennessee. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in uh, Clarksville, Tennessee. Yeah.
0: I'd imagine then that that's where maybe your love of the outdoors uh, must have began.
1: You know, it did because I grew up surrounded by the woods. And I think it's really, uh, you know, when we were just back there, we spent 75 days there, uh, you know, helping my parents out during the initial phase of the pandemic. And I realized, you know, as I'd walk outside, I would cook dinner all these nights um, for them. It's cooking is kind of a hobby I have as a traveler, as you can imagine. And yeah. I'd walk outside, and I'd hear all these birds chirping, and I'd hear the breeze blowing, and I'd see that faint orange that we all love when we look west in New York when the sun, you know, sunsets are happening in the west. And I was like, you know what? Damn. <laughs> like, a lot of people are always like, how does I go from Tennessee to climbing Mount Everest? And I'm always like, well... You know, one foot at a time, but also it's like you step outside and you're grilling and you're, you know, I'm 40 years old now. And I'm like, well, obviously it came from the land that I grew up on, which was just a farm, you know, old farm country that we weren't farming uh, in the last two decades, but that before was just filled with all of this life. Um, Yeah, so that is really where my love for the outdoors came. It truly came from my yard.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm not familiar with Clarksville. Obviously, like I know the big ones. I've been to Nashville. I've been to Memphis. Were you, yeah. were you near the Smokies at all?
1: No, you know, Clarksville is actually northwest of Nashville. And, uh, you know, you get a lot of rolling hills. And as you can imagine, I mean, the views are only there really when the trees open up. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until I went to college or, uh, well, I guess in, in maybe high school, we would venture up to Gallinburg sometimes with school trips or, or other community based groups that head up there to the Smokies. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you were a good five hours of driving from the Smokies, but it was just the most amazing trip anytime I went up there at that age for sure.
0: Wow. I mean, I would imagine that mountaineering, didn't begin at Everest, and I know that you did Everest quite young. Uh, where were the first places mm-hmm. that that you were hiking in summity?
1: You know, uh, the first stuff I was actually going to do, I was really lucky to meet a guy uh, in college that share you know really had the passion lit early on. He had already done the Appalachian Trail, he'd already been to Everest Base Camp, and we met in the fall freshman semester at University of Tennessee while I was in architecture school, and uh, his name was Ben, also Ben Delosier, and he, you know, was just a really generous guy and was willing to teach me a, a ton of the stuff, so we, during the second semester of uh, my freshman year, just started to go up to the Smokies, and we would take some pretty basic hikes because the weather was, you know, pretty bad in the middle of winter in the Smoky Mountains. Yes. A lot of humidity, a lot of ice, a lot of snow and, and stuff kind of going off there, cold, biting wind, things that were really uninviting, uh, which later, you know, I uh, could endure pretty well because the Himalayas were that same way. They just were a much higher altitude, and uh, so we would go do these hikes into some of the shelters along the Appalachian Trail along the Smoky Mountains and uh, Smoky Mountain National Park, and then eventually the spring hit, and it finally started warming up enough up where you could even maybe wear shorts, and I remember finally summoning uh, Mount Leconte, which is like, a, I think, somewhere around 6,400 feet or something like that. And uh, yeah, that's a that's a 12-mile round trip, or I think, give or take. And that was a cool experience because when it did open up, when you could see those trees, you could see the steepness of the mountainsides all around you. And yeah, you, know, you could just imagine yourself. Uh I did. I imagine myself being somewhere uh, you know, up in that blue sky out there, reaching my hand into it and, you know, below you being these amazing mountain ranges before that today, you know, had eroded down to just this fantastic wooded, steep rooted version of what they used to be. And uh yeah, I just was always so fascinated by the landscape once I started hitting those summits in the smokies.
0: Are you someone that kind of finds comfort in those difficult times? I'm thinking of, uh, gosh, what's the name of it? I've referenced it before, but there was a film that was on the Banff circuit uh, two years ago, I think. And it wasn't Everest. It was like one of the other peaks. And, and there was a, a gentleman who was the subject of that film. It was it was a couple, actually. And he was talking about how like when he's in those, what people might almost think of as like, desolate right just like cold tundra dangerous like he's most at peace do you find any sort of comfort in those those tough landscapes
1: no i mean not in the like like i know there's some people who i guess not to sound cliche but just to sort of distill i think what they're trying to represent about their passion is that sometimes they feel when they're closest to Adventure for them, meaning you know some sort of some sort of major exposure to risk, some sort of uh, you know big sacrifice, big Mm. consequences on the line if they blow it, right? Like some people get this really exceptional focus from that moment, and um, living in that moment is very rare, right? Because you've got to go find the, the environment that allows you to not only experience that and push you to that edge, but to let you. Uh, you know, ideally you have enough preparation of wisdom to survive that moment, right? Yeah. And for me, I'm, I'm less of that type of engineer, if that makes sense. Like, I'm not sort of reverse engineering my way to um fear. Fear is already present. I'm sort of looking at the mountains when I go to them like a, uh, you know, like a painter might look at a canvas. Like, I'm looking for... Line. I'm curious about standing there. I'm curious about uh, probably photographing it or in some way trying to understand and document what's happening in that space. And so I just sort of have this esoteric reason for going. And um, you know, I'm not going to say that I don't experience that fear, all those different, uh, that range of emotions that comes with that skill set that you can push exploration into. Mm. But you know, none of those times, those are times I've gritted through, and always felt like uh, usually I was burying out the uh, mistakes of too much ambition or the, uh, you know, sort of the perseverance of the ego and those those were never comfortable times. But the comfortable times were looking back through the photos or looking down at base camp and thinking, well, now we know what it looks like up there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we don't have to wonder about that anymore. And it, you know, it was cool or it wasn't. We
0: survived and,
1: you know, whatever. So there was some joy uh, in that type three fun, I guess.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm I'm really curious about Everest in in terms of, if you were already aware and conscious that you'd potentially be one of the youngest people to ever summit, um, like how much physical and mental preparation went into it and like the decision to go there. I'd, I'd love to hear about this.
1: You know, I, uh, I was 19 years old. I had come back from my first summer of living in the back of my truck in Colorado climbing 14,000 foot peaks with my friend who I referenced earlier, Ben Delosier. And I had like sold a Michael Jordan rookie card or no, I hadn't sold it yet. I was about to, and I I had cashed in some money I had from working in high school from a mutual fund. And finally taking my first summer off since I was like eight, eight years old and was just like, you know, Coming back to the University of Tennessee for another semester of architecture school, when out of the blue, I get a call one Saturday morning from my mom and she's like, hey, your dad is in the hospital and, uh, you know, he was got here yesterday and we had some tests and he's had this major heart surgery, um, yeah. come on down. And, you know, I just like went down there, stayed for the night, was extremely concerned. Um, you know, a lot of my life had been spent with my family, going to my family's, uh, you know, they had a, we had a family business. We weren't like huge tycoons or anything. We're just, <laughs> just are, you know, a family full of architects, right? And, you know, successful people that love what they did, but always had to fight so hard because we were a family business. And so I had thought, oh my God, like my dad's going to die. And, you um, you know, I'm 19 and I've got this love for the mountains and I'm working in an architecture firm at that time. And, you know, I'm just thinking, holy crap, like this is going to be me. You know, this is me in like 10 or 15 or 20 years. I mean, God was 51 years old. Right. And I'm 19. Wow. So, you know, at that moment I was like, really stunned, but I'm a pretty decisive person. And and I always have, I kind of had to be. Um, so I got in the car, on the drive home and I, you know, I I started to kind of run a mental checklist on like life goals and there weren't many. And, uh, I was just like, you know what, (sighs) whatever it takes, I'm just going to figure out how to get to the Himalayas and climb Mount Everest. And whatever that journey reveals to me is going to be just whatever it does. I just had this, you know, I knew the other, the alternative was death, just like everyone else in life is maybe not thinking that, (laughs) They're thinking maybe Everest's death. I was thinking, no, Everest was going to equal a life for me. And so, yeah, I mean, I just committed to it at that moment. And that was where the idea really came, you know, came to be. And then, you know, the next, I guess the next four years from there, I just sort of committed every asset and every minute of time and every opportunity and every ounce of energy I had to going on international expeditions as a guide And then, you know, eventually moving to Colorado, raising sponsorships from uh, large companies and from, uh, you know, outdoor brands. And then eventually found myself there and climbed with two Sherpa friends who I would climbed with in a previous season of climbing at the Himalayas and got to have my ass absolutely handed to me up there by them trying to climb it in their style. Um, But we did it. And I came away with an amazing experience that, you know, for a lot of people, they could catch on the rest of Everest took it was a really long running, um, highly uh, viewed podcast on iTunes. And then, um, yeah, I mean, we just nuts and bolts went in there and documented it and covered the experience and learned about it. And, you know, nowadays I look back at it and I think, wow, that was uh, for something that was such a popular experience to do with so many people around it, um, I still consider that to be a really amazing experience in my life and, and certainly a beacon of, of hope that I had for a while in that dark moment of wondering what would happen to my father and my own life. And, um, yeah, so that's, that would be sort of the short version of that.
0: (laughs) Well, I appreciate you sharing Uh, that, that personal story, um, uh, people who are listening know that uh, They'll find the links to that podcast And your other work through just the notes of this podcast They can just click it and get there uh, Sure. I think our worlds overlap a little bit uh, Just through like social media I saw that you know uh, Or at least I've heard of uh, Dawa Yangsome I, I had her on here Did, did you ever cross yeah. paths with her?
1: Yeah, I know Dawa She's great oh, cool. She is uh, just such a, a Phenomenal climber and great person i've uh, had the the good fortune of climbing Grizzly Peak with her once in Colorado and shooting some photos for her and uh, yeah, she's just a great person
0: was everest the most you know the most difficult or the most you know trying uh summit that you've done?
1: No, I mean, I look at everest as like everest is sort of at twenty three years old you know I climbed it, and at that point you know, making my own decisions i was Really, uh, you know, doing it, thinking what will come next, you know, that was the big question for everybody around me, like, well, okay, you survived this, what then? And, you know, like, uh, as an artist, of course, I thought, well, I don't, I won't know, why don't I go up there and see if there's any input that comes from that, you know? And uh, I found myself really inspired to, at that point, focus on lower altitude objectives and... To um you know, just really hone in my technical skills in rock climbing and ice climbing and skiing uh, from two thousand thousand and three till about two thousand and twelve, and I went back, gosh, I guess 15, 15 separate other uh, objectives in that time, and went on to do several uh first ascents, you know, on technical rock and ice climbs and been climbed and then did some first ski descents on terrain and urban skied and then began to combine the alpine climbing with the skiing and push that, kind of the envelope of, of what was possible with that at high altitude for a few years and then just retired, just stopped it altogether because I have a, an almost eight year old boy that was born and I felt like that part of my life needed to uh, stop when he was born. And that, you know, that was, that all those risks were lots of fun, but they're pretty inappropriate when uh, when I look at it in the face of, of the life and the obligations and the, you know, responsibilities I have today.
0: Yeah, that's a really like sober way of looking at it. Uh, so the yeah. the content that was created or or you know, the podcast you're referring to. Uh at twenty three, were you already working in, you know, film and documenting this stuff or did did that kick it off?
1: Yeah, you know, actually the I had started doing well, in high school, you know, I was really fortunate to have an art teacher who uh, wanted me to get in you know get on camera. She thought I was somebody who was really passionate about the stuff that i enjoyed and you know felt like i would be the type of personality that could maybe do that and um so you know i used to be on camera doing the like announcements at school when we had the channel one closed session stuff <laughs> and that was like 95 96 you know so that was old school and then i went to college and uh in 2001 you know, a couple of years after I'd see my dad on that gurney, uh, there was a, a connection that I had down in Atlanta at one of the Turner, you know, CNN, obviously owned Turner, Turner, CNN was the relationship there. But basically a, a broadcast network was interested in supporting me in going to Everest to climb it, knowing I would be a Tennessee and calling on Everest. And they had a network that was fo- focused on telling programs about Southerners. And uh, you know, so I had taken a camera for my very first time to Denali, uh, the highest mountain in North America. While I was guiding that for Rainier Mountaineering, and had shot some. So that that particular time really began um, my shooting career on the other side of the camera. And of course, at that time, they were like, "Well, you need to shoot yourself, and you need to shoot the mountain." And boy, don't I know that process now, yeah. 20 years later. <laughs> and, uh, man, it's like, uh, from there, you know, I bought a Sony digital camera and, you know, eventually 9 happened. And you know, if you were in advertising that time, you know how difficult it was to get any programming underwritten. So they went away, but I was able to find the funding for Everest by pitching that I could go shoot a film and, um, So then it got serious and I got some really great teaching, uh, some great people to work with who taught me a lot Mm. and were more experienced. And that then, you know, led me eventually to now 20 years later, just, just being all that I do and all that I think about and the thing I love the most.
0: Wow. I'm going to kind of break the fourth wall here and say, uh, for the sake of the conversation, I'll, uh, pretend I haven't. Uh, watched anything about the snowman trek because I think that uh, Mm. we need to sort of set the context for people Uh, so I'll say again that Bhutan to me just seems like such a magical place it's not easy to travel to Um, I had been overseas and I was trying to get there but there was a weird sort of mix up where my bank back in the states wasn't comfortable with wiring the money to Bhutan for the you know daily taxes and fees, and they were like, yep. "You have to be here." And it was like, "All right, like this this just didn't work out." Uh, but I've read a lot about it now, and I had read that the snowman trek is like really special and really difficult. So I'd love to hear as as, as much as you can say about um, the decision to go there, and I think there was like a specific mission that you were uh seeking to do and to to document
1: yeah i mean you know after all those years climbing in the himalayas um and really like you know pioneering skiing like you heard that kind of talked about like features right like rocks and ice and ski descents and stuff like that and just really technical geeky kind of explorer stuff well like you know, during all this time, you know, we're always doing the thing I like the most is hiking. Like, that's the one thing I know I'm going to get to do the rest of my life. And I, and I don't, I am perfectly content on a trail walking along. I love it. And, um, you know, so during all of these massive treks, sometimes these huge peaks we were climbing in the Himalayas, you know, we would talk about, you know, with other people we might meet on the trail, certainly with all the locals that we were meeting and staying with. Where, what is the big trail? What is the trail, you know, that if you're just going to do a trail in the Himalayas, which one is the one that's like the the one that has everyone's respect? And to the Nepali people we were always around, they said, man, a snowman trek is in Bhutan. That is the thing that is the hardest. And we would talk to other trekkers, and they sort of had this lore about it. And so, um, you know, after my son was born And I took, you know, I took a couple years, well, about five years off actually from any international travel. I'd done, I don't know, 35 plus or minus expeditions somewhere around that area. By that time, I was uh, 32 years old when he was born and just took his five years off mostly just to spend time with him and kind of sort out, you know, his younger years. And uh, eventually, I just was like, well, I can't shake the fact that I want to go and experience this really difficult route through Bhutan. And, uh, you know, I had pioneered in all these different disciplines that have been, you know, brought me a lot of joy in going to these places. And I thought, well, why not do some pioneering in distance? Like, why not go over there and, like you, I mean, there's a lot of complications with the finances that go into going to Bhutan. And, you know, once you get the, once we got the support to go over there, we got the team together, we got all the resources together and everything, um, you know, getting there, getting the, the trip organized correctly, having it go right, all that kind of stuff is basically a a day-to-day process, uh, because, you know, it's not, Bhutan is a wonderful country and I think the people are, are really, uh, you know they are are really invested in keeping their culture in protecting and sharing what's valuable to them with the the cultures that come and engage and travel there and because of that you know they've got some pretty substantial restrictions um you know including financial that when you go there are gonna you know keep a lot of people out and they say it's high value and low impact and to me i mean i'm a you know i don't want to Sit here and act like uh, like I always appreciate when people open up an interview with how accomplished they see me as being. But I'm still just like this street level person, <laughs> you know. I'm just like this guy who wherever I go in the world, like you may see me in the dark alleyway, like just looking for uh, a Snickers bar or <laughs> something, you know. Like I'm not uh, I'm not looking for the highest, most crazy, you know, luxurious experience. I'm not looking for a vacation. I'm looking for Life in all its forms. And, you know, that's not really the client that they were getting regularly that was coming to Bhutan and, and having to go on expeditions there because everyone is required to be with a guide uh, the entire time you're there. From the moment you get off the airplane until you are basically out of the airport until you get back to the airport, you are with the liaison of that. Uh, you know, that is in charge of you and they know where you are at every moment. And when you're just like walking down the street, thinking, oh, I'll go see what's down that alleyway where somebody's drying some chilies over there, boom, there's your guy. <laughs> They're like always there. So, you know, if you can imagine a country that really values this slower pace, this culturally enriching experience, um, you know, all these things when you have maybe 40 days to travel uh, and, and the money to do that, that you might want to do, then, you know, you think of, you're probably thinking of Bhutan in the traditional sense that they've marketed Bhutan. But when you go over there with, uh, you know, an ultra runner like Anna Frost, who is one of the world's most experienced ultra runners, she has run, uh, she's won the Hard Rock 100 endurance race in the mountains of Colorado, it's a hundred miles long. She's completed uh, Nolan's 14, which is a traverse uh, almost 100 miles long, uh, 14, 14,000-foot peaks in less than 60 hours. She's the type of person who I look at, and although she has a very illustrious ultra-marathon championship, I mean, she is the champion and has won everything that she you know, has really set her heart to. Even though she has all those great finishing times at races, she is the person who I you know, felt was the strongest candidate to, you know, run across the snowman trek and to set a speed record. And so we had Anna as part of our team, and I was really lucky to have her leadership skills and um, certainly her longstanding experience through the mountains, which is incredibly valuable, and her previous experiences in Bhutan. And then we had uh, Timothy Olson, who is one of the most accomplished ultramarathon runners in the world. He won Western States, which is the most illustrious high-speed ultramarathon in uh, North America, and it has global recognition. Um, So he's a guy who loves some adventure, is very steeped in Eastern culture, and is a, a very heavy meditator. And then you've got me. I'm a street-level guy who loves to explore and just can sort of lead trips like this while I'm shooting a movie. Um, And assisting me and becoming one of the central characters to the Snowman Trek film was Chris Ord, who is just an absolutely amazing cinematographer and creative. He considers himself a jack-of-all-trades, but I would love to see him behind the camera more. And, um, you know, so this group of four of us went in there with different experience levels and different skill sets. And, you know, in each day going after it, trying to set this speed record across this, you know, nearly 200 mile long trail with, you know, more than, you know, 16 or 11, 16,000 foot passes, numerous passes over 17,000 feet. It just became this total suffer fest because we what we learned from it was that you know when you mesh those four personality types that i just described like myself included with that you know 40-day trip that you're trying to make into a very short period of time you know you're trying we were trying to set a speed record in two weeks across this massive scale uh you just get a lot of you get a lot of problem solving and we got a lot of tension, and that led to a lot of drama, but it also led to an outcome that you know you can only accomplish when you're willing to have some tension and have some drama. <laughs> Does that all make sense? Uh, I'm sure that probably brings up some questions here and there, right?
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, I'm just thinking in some way you're having to keep up with the speed, right, because you're filming it, and you're also lugging gear like how problematic did that become for you
1: you know for me it's like i just i guess that they're really one of the things that's come down to probably differentiating the craft that i'm pursuing you know as a as a filmmaker as a director and as a shooter and you know a communicator uh i think you just do your best You know, you bring what you think you can document the story in, you hope for the best, you get the camera out and you shoot when it's appropriate, you put it away when it's not. And uh, I have always found that, you know, there, there really aren't the resources for heavy and large productions for this type of thing. And although that film ended up being an iTunes bestseller and went in, you know, all these theaters across the United States, and Europe, and the Middle East, and everything, I mean, it, it like really lit up the country of Bhutan and got them excited and everything. Um, you know, at the time, it ultimately was something that I shot on uh, a DSLR that I had bought used for around seventeen hundred bucks. I shot it on a, a point and shoot camera that I had, I had bought for around five hundred dollars. Uh, And then, you know, that stuff was in a pack that I was carrying with a a stabilizer, you know, sort of a support that would keep the footage more stable at some of the time uh, when I would pull it out of that pack. And otherwise, I didn't really even use a tripod for the whole thing. Now, you know, you're not usually seeing a Hollywood film that's got that level of, uh, you know, intimacy or, you know, problems because one person shot most of it. But it worked out and I think that it's just always been that way. It's it's like, you know, if you see the film, you know that uh, something happens to Chris and, uh, you know, I I never talk about the degree of, uh, you know, focus that shooting or the toll maybe that shooting is taking on me during that uh, film. Right. I'm just sort of felt like the real story was the story. And so, you know, when the story is good and you're just there and that's, that's like why, you know, that's how, that's how I make my contribution. I come back and my goal is not just to selfishly experience this, but to hopefully pass something on that other people can experience and, and make their own judgments on and then maybe go do themselves. So yeah, it's, you know, although it's, seems like maybe sometimes these might be, you know, really well done or, or whatever. It's like, ultimately they are just the most basic bare bones. (laughs) Shoots you can imagine with some gear that, uh, you can afford, you know, that people can actually pick up and purchase right now, probably right now at a pawn shop. (laughs) Mm. Oh man. You know,
0: I was actually wondering about when things go wrong because if I'm correct, Everest is an industry, uh, at a bunch of different levels. And there are people who, who die on Everest. Um, yep. But there's also a lot of people doing Everest. Like when you were doing the snowman trek, did uh, did anyone talk to you guys about like, well, what happens if you're at the length of what for a normal person would be 20 days in and someone snaps an ankle? Like how, is, are there helicopters? Like is there, is there a way to get that person out?
1: Yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, that was the experience we had, um, you know, with, with Chris. I mean, he ultimately, you know, we went really fast and it wasn't even that big a deal at first. And we're doing it with locals who, you know, are acclimatized, maybe not as obviously don't have the, the incredible, uh, background that Cameron and had as endurance runners. But those locals were acclimatized to the altitude and Chris wasn't. And so we had to fly him out um, with some pretty significant pulmonary edema that he couldn't shake. And then, you know, once, uh, you know, in the high Himalayas back in 2009, I was on the side of Barunse at a 21,600 foot peak and with two of my partners and we were doing the new route that no one had ever done that. Was Uh, Very steep and very technical On this really Difficult to view face And we got stuck at 21,600 feet For uh, what Four nights and five days Oh my god And you know in that kind of situation Usually you die And we were able to reverse And get out of there With death nipping at our heels The entire time But I couldn't have ever imagined Calling a helicopter at that moment then a year later, on the other side of Barunce, uh one of the same, the same guys whose life we were saving that day is with me, and we're walking out of base camp, and I trip, and I break my ankle. And then I end up on a helicopter flying out of there. So, yeah, I mean, I've seen my fair share of, like, usually it's always me orchestrating some sort of rescue for someone else. That has happened around me as a guide, uh, you know, as a climber, as a as an expeditioner, but, you know, I can definitely say there was one time when it was me and I had to hop in that helicopter and fly back to Kathmandu. And so, yeah, we're always aware of that. Um, no one is immune to accidents. They happen. They're part of it.
0: Wow. Are you comfortable being in front of the camera being the subject of the, of the art?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's been, a, it's been both ways uh for so long because i think sometimes there are stories like you know obviously with the stomach Trek like i'm in camera i'm on camera with that i'm narrating it um you know i've done uh, other films like everest the other side the movie that uh we brought back from Mount everest i'm on camera the whole time i was a live tv host for a while for the Plum tv network uh I was out here out West and all these mountain towns. So yeah, it's, it's not my, I would say it's not my preferred route. I definitely mm. enjoy, you know, the running series I have today, run around the world. The other series I have ungrounded, um, you know, the commercial work I do that profiles all these other amazing characters and personalities, uh, you know, in both adventure and running and, and climbing and skiing. I mean, I get to make films about the Hillary Nelson and the captain of the North face team. So You know, it's just like I am only on camera when it's like I am I believe that I can tell the story or I believe that I'm the person who's gonna go live that story. Mm. Does that make sense? That like I like I think that I'd rather tell everyone else's story, but there are some stories that and there are some exploratory things that only you know, that I'm, I'm the only person committed to going on and getting the resource to actually go and show people what that is. And that is the only time that I'm on camera anymore.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, oh. that does make sense to me. You mentioned the, the run around the world show. I was going through, yeah. I, it, it might've been your Instagram and I saw the, the Williamsburg bridge and I live off of Broadway, which is basically where the Williamsburg bridge empties out into when it, on the Brooklyn side, um, yeah. So that was cool to see that. What what is the what's the premise of this and 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 where has this show taken you?
1: You know, so like right before you know, I came back from Bhutan, and uh, that year I went to Africa and shot a little bit for National Geographic, and then you know I just sort of made that, started making the Snowman Trek, and this was back in 2017. Uh, I just started you know editing that film and writing it and directing it and everything. So I had a A lot of time kind of spent in the the U.S. that year. And then around October, my friend Jason Schlarb, who's a professional ultramarathon runner, posted on Facebook that, like, suddenly they had a shooter that was going to this area in China, western China, in Sichuan province, that there was going to be this 100-kilometer race through these mountains that I had like done big walls in that, you know, we've been like, we had done like new routes first ascents back in my mid twenties in this area. And I thought, man, that is crazy. He is going in there and there's a hundred kilometer race in China. I don't even believe this. So I was, so I called him and I was like, Hey, what's the deal? You need a shooter. And he's like, dude, you're kind of like high like this might be below your pay grade. And I was like, no. If you need <laughs> someone to go to that place, I'll you buy me the ticket. I'm there, man. I just want to see how that works out. I wanna see this uh outdoor boom that's happening in China. And man, I couldn't believe it. Like here I am ten years later, uh, eleven years later, after having, you know, just been drenched and just we just, just get our, just so beat up in that valley doing rock climbs. And here I am 10 years later and I go in there and it's like suddenly this little town that had been like an armpit. I mean, it had been, uh, I mean, it just, it had not been invested in by, you know, anybody or the government at that point in time. Suddenly 10, 11 years later, there were like Range Rover traffic jams in this town. And there's like heated floors and the hotels and all this crazy stuff. And I was just like standing there with Jason Slard thinking, man, you go some pretty cool places. and You know, if you're into coming to places like this, not knowing what you're going to expect, and then, you know, we should work on some programming. So he and I, and his girlfriend at that time, Meredith Edwards, who's now the co-host of that show. Um, you know, I just documented the race, documented the talks they were doing around China, um, met a bunch of people in China during that time and kind of relived a little bit of the past and, and how fun it had been climbing there, you know, younger And we made the first episode of Run Around the World, and uh, you know, then that was sponsored. That was basically ad-supported programming. From you know, their their different sponsors paid to make that. I made it, and then they basically support it with advertising, which is awesome. And then we made another one, and they went back to China, and then we made another one, and they went to Oman, and then uh, they went to Argentina and then we did one in Colorado to kind of give some people more backstory on them. And then the season finale was at the world series of Ultramarathon running the ultra trail du Mont Blanc in Chamonix France. And, uh, yeah, now the series, I can't tell you what season two is going to do, but it's going to have some very large media distribution. We have a huge couple of well, three media partners actually for, uh, in the adventure space that will be distributing it when we release it. And that Williamsburg uh, picture was from the New York episode we shot up until March 16th, oh. the day before I left New York for the pandemic. And we did a whole episode there. And what, what I like about it, what I love about my job is like, I get to make original stuff and um, I, I get to do what it is that I want to do. But what I'm wanting to do is based on a lot of data and information and engagement that I get through, you know, having a pretty large social media footprint that I can explore and and engage with. And then, you know, also hearing from all these brands and different people and we were thinking that, man, there's this really cool story about New York city that needs to be uncovered about this guy, Ted Corbett, who used to run from the Bronx all the way down the financial district and back in like, you know, the mid middle of the, the, the last century, when no one was thinking about running a hundred miles and he was doing like 200 mile a week sometimes. And he was one of the founding members, the New York road runners and the marathon. And he was African American and uh, you know, here from all over the world, everywhere I've been everything I ever hear about ultra marathon running, I've always seen it as a very, as a, a, dominated by, you know, a certain type of like French person or <laughs> German person. Yeah. Like, you know these hardcore europeans and i was just so psyched to be like man actually the history starts here in new york city (laughs) you know with someone you wouldn't expect and that's what i love about that show and that's what i love about doing that show is that we can do what we want and we can tell parts of history that are fun to learn about introduce you to new characters and uh give us an opportunity to explore the culture of running like we haven't before so, yeah, that's what that show does. It's taken me all over the world. It's going to, you know, ideally we'll go to Spain again, uh, or Spain in September if we can, and then to Thailand and back to China again this year and, you know, crank out a season to, to pop out for 2021. So, yeah, that's the story on Run Around the World. It's a
0: really kick-ass experience. That sounds amazing. That that season two sounds really cool. Congrats on uh, getting that distribution, getting picked up. That's so cool.
1: Yeah, thanks, man. And I just want to say, like, for people out there that maybe are interested in, you know, being creative, like, man, you know, I went on that first trip with Jason unpaid, you know? I mean, and you have to take these chances. I mean, it's like, I still, I go to China. I have this huge project in China I'm working on. that makes a snowman track look like a stepping stone, you know? And, you know, you have to invest in the opportunities to go and find out what something is going to be. And, uh, you know, if it works, then you'll, you won't, you will have to continue to invest in it because it'll be fun and you'll see the return, you'll see the reward. So I just always encourage people that maybe feel like, it's you know, it's difficult to get these partnerships, like these big media partnerships are based on, you know, pulling the numbers. We got them in, Um, you know, we we got people to watch it. We got people to engage with it around the world. And if you can just believe in others, believe in yourself and go and try that stuff, you know, you don't need all this fancy equipment. You just need, sometimes you just need one plane ticket and some hope and, you know, the will to keep trying.
0: Yeah, I'll link people to your Instagram account. You've got some incredible pictures from China. There's one uh, uh-huh. from back in October of 2019 of uh, Moon Lake. It's unbelievable. It looks yeah. like looks like another world.
1: Yeah, the one that I'm going to put a little film out here soon. I've been kind of holding it because I don't want people to, you know, I mean, I'm waiting because I've got another couple of projects in front of it, and I don't want people to get. Uh, I don't want it to be in some bad news cycle where people all over the world are angry at china Mm. because i want them to see all this beauty that's happening in their mountains i mean you know the moon lake and being there at that time uh, and lotus the lotus sea uh those were absolutely amazing places and a lot of the chinese locals uh from all over the region are heading over there just like we might go to lake tahoe or some other really interesting place and I went during October of nineteen, and I um, I did this amazing like trail called the uh, the Ganga Trail. Minya is what it's also sometimes referred to, but the Ganga Trail is China's most popular trail. And you go to you know just over five thousand meters, so around seventeen thousand feet, and you get to see the highest mountain outside of uh, Nepal and Tibet. And Pakistan to the east of that is this Minyakanka, this Ganga mountain. And uh, you walk around that and it's absolutely amazing. And there was no drama and no tension at all (laughs) (laughs) in doing that. So I've kind of been holding that story because I'm like, God, this is just a positive story about China. Like, who has one of these? that they could really like genuinely just be so excited about. And, uh, you can imagine as a creative, I think people are going to think up some sort of propagandist, but it's going to be like, no, seriously, like the hiking here is so much fun. Why wouldn't you want to do this? And, you know, I guess also you referenced that Instagram account, my Facebook, uh, page Ben Clark film director is where you can see, you know, the a huge amount of the body of work that yeah. I've done since, uh, May of 2018, there's a lot of videos on there as well, and, and definitely some of these photos occasionally, like he's talking about, make it over there
0: too. Well, you bring up an interesting point in there, because I think right now the United States is not a place that people are too eager to travel to, uh, both because of, well, for many reasons, but COVID, political reasons and, and social reasons, but we also have some absolutely unbelievable landscapes here. So it's definitely like people should should separate the the political from the natural landscape because the, those pictures of China are absolutely unbelievable.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's the – I guess if you love mountains, I will come to where you are. That's sort of is how I see mm. it. I mean, you know, there's so many beautiful places to go in the world, and I just really want to encourage cultures that are around mountains right now to – Embrace people and also embrace, um, you know, keeping them the way they want them. If you want them clean, pick up. If you don't, well, you know, that's your choice. But I think that, you know, all across the globe right now, there's a a big push to get outside. And, uh, you know, when we can venture further than where we can drive and and fly domestically, sure, there's going to be some amazing mountain ranges to go see that, uh, that you may not have seen yet.
0: I won't keep you too much longer, Ben, but you mentioned a place that doesn't get mentioned very often and doesn't receive uh, a whole lot of attention, I guess, and that's Oman. Uh, really yeah. Really curious to hear about your experiences there.
1: You know, I had no idea just how beautiful that country was going to be. And, I, you know, the... The Middle East is, was very mysterious to me. Um, I have never, I had never been there and going there of course with, uh, with the show run around the world to an inaugural, you know, 130 kilometer race meant that the adventure factor was super high, right? Because no one had ever run this race before. Jason and Meredith were going to run it. And you know, what do we know about Oman? And I, Oman is this adventure destination that probably isn't on too many people's tick list. But if you can find the time in the winter to get over there, uh, it's less expensive than getting to South America. And you will find beautiful summertime conditions. You get, there are excellent trails. There are tons of opportunities to get into the desert and see it like you've never seen it before there are opportunities to go scuba diving like to these beautiful islands and the food there is really good it's fresh um yeah as an american we don't eat a whole lot of lamb but i tell you what whenever i'm traveling internationally i eat some lamb and i like the lamb in oman (laughs) i'm kind of a foodie and uh you know all that stuff, you know, those are like the features of Amman that make it great. But the people there are very like peaceful and tranquil. The country is peaceful and tranquil. Um, You know, I didn't, I went and visited a mosque and found that all the visitors around there were very respectful of, you know, the, the space and their religion. And yeah, I mean, there's just really not a lot to say about Amman that I couldn't, you know, couldn't find positive. Just hard to go to a mountain place that ha- looks like that. I just haven't seen another place full of mountains that look like that. And uh, with so much left to explore and, you know, have finding typically in a region like that, not being war-torn, not being problematic, but being just a peaceful, nice, tranquil local culture. Mm. Really cool place.
0: Wow. You know, normally... Uh, ben when I rap I ask people like hey what's what's coming up what do you have on the horizon but I think you mentioned a number of things for people to be excited about and I will link to like you were just mentioning your Facebook so people can kind of have a lot of your your work centralized I know that yeah. I know you definitely have probably hours worth of more stories but I'll say that <laughs> maybe I can keep uh, keep you in mind for a part two the next time you're back home in Brooklyn. I'm probably not too far from you. So uh, it'd be great to do a, a part two in person and to uh, get some more stories from you.
1: Totally. And Tim, thanks a lot for your interest. You know, I really uh, appreciate the opportunity to, to have a chat with you and share this stuff. And, you know, thanks for, for linking out the stuff and, and letting people know where they can connect with me. Um, you know, as you probably have learned, I get back to people and it's important to me, uh, you know, in the role that I've got and with the passion I have for exploration and and really trying to explore to just be available and to try to try to make this information accessible and possible. And, um, you know, always happy to share. So thank you so much for the opportunity to, to do that today and for having me on.
0: That's a wrap. 181 is in the books. Thank you to Ben. I had a really great time talking to him. I thought that he said some some really cool and insightful things that I'm going to take with me um, for my next travels and my next trips around the world. So hope you enjoyed this one, folks. Thank you, as always, for listening. For all of you out there, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you very soon. Peace.